Last week we talked about the invitation to follow Jesus. We're in this series on what does it mean to follow Jesus, and we talked about the invitation to follow Jesus. Today I want to talk about the indications that we are followers of Jesus. As I was working on this message, I started thinking about something uh, I read about uh, many years ago. It's called the processionary caterpillar. Have you ever heard of the processionary caterpillar? It's a unique kind of caterpillar because <clears throat> what they do is they will follow each other closely. They butt up to each other, right up against and they wherever the one in front of them goes, the other one goes. That's so they, they, they uh, uh, travel in columns is uh, what we're told. And there was a Frenchman uh, named Lefebvre who saw some processionary cat, uh, caterpillars on the edge of one of the big pots in his garden. And he tried, decided to try an experiment. He was a scientist, and so he got some more processionary caterpillars, and he, he filled in the gap between the, the end and the, the, the top of uh, the group. So it made a complete circle of these processionary caterpillars, and they start marching around the edge of this flower pot. And he watched and studied to see how long they would do that, and, and it, they did that for at least a week just like that, around, and covered over a mile in distance, one behind the other, just going blindly uh, behind the one in front of it. Well, when I was preparing the message, I thought about that and how it illustrates so often that many people today, including Christians, are a lot like that, aren't they? They have their nose glued to the back of the wrong people, to the back of the wrong philosophies, to the back of the wrong beliefs, to the back of the wrong cultural ideals, and they're blindly following the spirit of the age. And there is no real indication that they're any different than the person next to them. The Scripture teaches that if you are in Christ, that you are a citizen of God's kingdom. And as a citizen of God's kingdom, you are different or are to be different, and you have different marching orders. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians just a chapter back in chapter 5, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When you came to Christ, you became a new creation. Uh, and all things, he says, are passed away, and all things have become new. And that's what our passage talks about today. Paul addresses some of the issues uh, of the Corinthians as it relates to their identification and who they are in the kingdom of God. Follow along with me, if you will, in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. Speak into our hearts this morning. Father, uh, remove the distractions 
allow the enemy to have no effect on our mind and our heart. But Father, make us fully receptive to your truth. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, my God, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Now in these verses, Paul's addressing what what are uh, some fundamental characteristics of a follower of Christ. Now the Corinthians, you have to understand, the Corinthians had a reputation for claiming to being dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. That was their reputation. But they also had a reputation for while claiming to be followers of Christ, of living lives that had little indication that they were, in fact, followers of Christ. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, he writes and says to them, are you not carnal? Are you not in the flesh? He says, in fact, you're living just like mere men. Or, in other words, you're, there's no distinction between you and those who don't know Christ. And by the way, I've said over the years many times, we sometimes say uh, about people, well, they're just backslidden. But we need to be honest sometimes. A person that's backslidden and continues to live backslidden for years is not backslidden. They're lost. And we need to be honest. And Paul's addressing that. And by the way, at the close of this book, He tells them, examine yourself to see whether or not you're even in the faith. So Paul didn't give them a pass, but he said that they they claim to be followers of Christ, but they look no different than everybody around them. So, So this passage addresses the contradiction between their identity and their behavior. And I want to show you three things. Uh, that I believe he points to that indicate our devotion to Christ. First of all, we see it in verse 14 when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What is he talking about? Well, following Jesus is about your association. Following Jesus is about your association. Now, Paul probably is alluding to Deuteronomy 22.10, which prohibited the yoking together of oxen and donkeys. Why? Because of the incompatibility. So you wouldn't say, we've got to plow the field, uh, Brother Tim, and say, but we're going to uh, uh, yoke a, uh, a donkey and an oxen together. It's just not going to work. And so Deuteronomy and all of the, the law that was given to Israel for their good, uh, God says, Don't, let's, we're not going to do that. We're not going to uh, uh, be unequally yoked. Well, that's probably what Paul is alluding to right here. And his point is, just as animals are designed differently, so are believers and unbelievers. We're different. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not the old creation, so you're different, fundamentally different, eternally different. So Paul warns of the dangers of associating with the unbelieving world. Now, hang on for just a second. I'm not talking about isolation from the world. I'll talk about that a little later on. But Paul is warning of the dangers of associating uh, with the unbelieving world. That means deriving your fellowship from them, uh, uh, their influence upon your life. And this passage is often used, I bet you've heard it used, in context of marriage, right? Well, we're told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It certainly applies in the marital, uh, uh, in marital matters. But the context is much broader than that and much bigger than that. It, it also has a larger application, and how we would say it is, all associations with unbelievers 
have the potential to lead to infidelity toward Christ. All associations with unbelief. Now, someone has said, yeah, do, how do our associations, how do our relationships affect us? Well, I like what one person said. They said, you cannot soar with the eagles during the day if you run with the turkeys all night. That's because relationships affect us, don't they? I, I, listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings this morning. Well, maybe I need to hurt some feelings this morning. Now, I, I, look, listen, there are some of you who are watching by live stream, watching on television, sitting in this live audience, and you need to find some new relationships. Because you are never going to be a fully uh, devoted follower and disciple of Christ until you get away from some relationships that are dragging you away from God or keeping you from going on from God. Your relationships have profound effect on your spiritual life. Listen, your relationships have profound effects on your spiritual life. Your relationships can either stunt your spiritual growth, destroy your spiritual growth, or strengthen your spiritual growth. That's why they're so important. Here's the reason why. Here's re write these down, okay? It's not on your outline, but you, you're going to need these. Write these down. Why, <clears throat> why relationships, why do they have such a profound effect on your spiritual life? It's number one, because relationships shape our commitments. Relationships shape our commitments. How many times have we seen people who were once following Christ only to later abandon their commitment to Jesus in order to pursue a commitment or a relationship with a non-believer? Now, I've seen it so many times in more than four decades of ministry. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone that seemed like they were so sold out for Christ, but someone outside of the kingdom began to tug at them, and I've heard this, well, a, a genuine believer can't fall in love with a, a lost person. Who made that rule up? It, it, it happens, and when it happens, a heart can be pulled and pulled away. And I've seen it many times. But not only just in, in those kinds of, uh, of relationships, it can happen in friendships. I've seen people leave because they got, uh, they got uh, connected with the wrong friends. And those friends pulled them away from Christ. I've heard had people say, well, I'm going to pull them to Christ. Rarely, rarely does a Christian pull people toward them, but almost always will a, a lost world pull a Christian away. It's a fact. Hannah Whitehall uh, Smith has a, has a statement about the Christian secret of a happy life. And she says the standard of practical holy living has been so low among Christians that very often the person who tries to practice spiritual disciplines in everyday life is looked upon with disapproval by a large portion of the church. And for the most part, the followers of Jesus Christ are satisfied with a life so conformed to the rest of the world and so like the world in almost every respect that a casual observer watching them sees little difference between the Christian and the pagan. Relationships affect our commitment and the, how we look before a world. Secondly, relationships influence our convictions. Not only are, do they shape our uh, commitments, they influence our convictions. Far too many people, including Christians today, have constructed a worldview that is primarily the result of the influence of the people around them. Now, that can be good or bad, I, I suppose, but they have 
so often allowed the world around them to create the worldview in them. And rarely is the world going to get it right. No, the world's never going to get it right. Because it's, it belongs to another kingdom. And it's controlled by powers and principalities that we can't even see. And so often, relationships influence a person's conviction. That's why you've heard me say it many times over the years. Our, our staff has heard me say it till they're sick of me. Yeah, but, but this whole idea of a person saying, well, I believe the Bible, but... What does that mean? That means I've been influenced by relationships around me. And so I may say I believe the Scripture, but... You know, I've got friends that believe this and, and family that believes this and, and colleagues that believe this. So while I believe the Bible, and by the way, anytime you say I believe the Bible, but you've just said I don't really believe the Bible. And so relationships influence our convictions. Third, relationships reveal our connections. Look at this. Uh, Paul uses a series of questions in verses 14 to 16 to reveal the incompatibility problem between contradictory relationships, the ox and the donkey kind of thing. Look, look if you will, with me. He says in verse 4, he asks these questions. They're rhetorical questions because just in asking them, you already know the answer. Okay, so look what he says. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? They're incompatible. They're contradictory. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, they're incompatible. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's uh, I I idols or idolatry, paganism. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, he uses these five questions to show that, that our relationships reveal what our connections really are. And so you can't say, well, I walk in the light, at the same time I live in the darkness. See, I, I, you can't say, I, I worship Belial, but I also worship Jesus. He's saying these connections are contradictory. They don't work. It reveals the inconsistency and the incompatibility of our, uh, our relationship connections. And so Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked together, whether, whether it's our association in business relationships, in dating relationships, or in any kind of relationship that requires a deep commitment and a deep investment in my life. So he's talking about friendships. He's talking about all of those kinds of relationships that influence our life. And that our association with them can be destructive. So following Jesus is about understanding our associations. No, secondly, following Jesus, he, he speaks of, is about our consecration. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he makes this statement. Here it is, underline this, for we are the temple of the living God. Paul's reference to followers of Christ as temples is done to reinforce this idea that we are to be holy as people because we are viewed by God as a holy place. You are a holy place. Why are you a holy place? Because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. That makes you a holy place. And because you're a holy place, you're not to defile the temple of God. As the dwelling place of God, 
we are to be consecrated to God alone. Uh, let me give you a couple of ways to think about consecration. Consecration is a singular devotion of God. That's the first easy way. It, it is a singular kind of devotion to God. That's consecration. And Jesus said it this way. Jesus said in Luke 4, 8, he said, and, you, uh, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. So consecrated, singular devotion to God. That's what it is. We worship only God. We don't worship gods, plural. Remember I told you that uh, the, the Roman Empire uh, the religious establishment would have been fine if Christians said, we'll just be one of many of the gods. Christians wouldn't do it. It's what brought great uh, persecution upon them. And uh, because they said, we will only serve God. And we will only worship God. Those are, are the elements of singular devotion. God and God alone. No other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. And so consecration, uh, as the dwelling place of God, we are... Now listen, listen carefully. When we worship other things, call it whatever you want, but when other things take the place of God in our life, they are taking the throne of the temple of God over. Does that make sense? So that's why this is so significant. That's why our consecration is so important. And the enemy of your soul is so uh, uh, subtle and he's so cunning and clever, he will creep in uh, and you don't even realize that something else has taken over the throne of your life. And when that throne has been occupied by anything other than God, the temple, your temple, has been defiled. Because you are the temple of the living God. Now, if you look, if you'll go out of this place and you'll remember that, it'll help you when you make decisions. Wait a minute, I'm a temple. <laughs> the Spirit of God lives in me, and I don't want to defile the temple. And so he speaks of this kind of consecration. Then I'd tell you, think of consecration as just simply complete surrender. It's just selling out. It is just genuine surrender. And this, like many things I've told you in the past, is a process. It's an ongoing process. It's not an event that happens and it's done forever. It's a process. I sell out today. I surrender today. Uh, tomorrow, I get up and I surrender again. Alan Redpath, great Bible teacher of a different era, had two daughters. And they, when he would come home at night, they loved to swarm him. And one of them uh, would grab uh, his leg and, and hug him. She would grab his leg and hold on to his leg. And she'd hold on with all her might. And uh, with the other arms free, he would snatch the other girl up and he would hold her. So one, get the picture, is wrapped around his leg. And the other, he's holding in his arms. He loved them and they loved him. And the girl squeezing her father's leg would look at the other girl and say, uh, kind of smirkily to her sister, she says, I have all of daddy. The other girl learned how to respond she said well you may have all of daddy but daddy has all of me I want to ask you this morning does the father have all of you does the Father have all of you? That's consecration. It is selling out and giving ourselves totally over to Him so that He has all of us. And if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, you must surrender. Consecrate yourself to Him. 
And then we come to the final point I want to share with you this morning, and that is, so following Jesus is about your association, right? It's about your relationships. Following Jesus is about your consecration. It's about your devotion. And then last, following Jesus is about your separation. Verse 17, therefore, therefore, based on all that I've just told you, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Go out from them and, and be separate. And the whole idea is to be separate from uh, a system. And in this case, of course, he's speaking of the world system, uh, the, the idols uh, of the age and the influence of the age. It's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. It has been uh, accurately translated that the idea is do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. And you have to think about it. Uh, uh, look, all between advertising and uh, television and uh, uh, print media and so many things, just outside forces are always trying, trying to shape us, aren't they? They're trying to squeeze us into uh, 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 an idea, or a philosophy. The spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, it's all working, trying to, it's conspiring to, to conform us to the world when Jesus says you are to be conformed to another world. You are to be conformed to the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the, the, the system that should be shaping you. Do not be conformed to this world. But he adds, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And based on what Paul has just said in these preceding verses that we looked at, this command, and it is a command by the way, to separate ourselves, listen, should be the normal response of the Christian. It's a command. So come out. Based on, therefore, based on what I've just told you, come out from them and be separate. It's a command, but it is a command that reflects what should be normal for the Christian. It is normal for you to live outside of the system of the world. Does that make sense? The system being the ideas and the directions and the influence of the world. Now, I said earlier that, that we're not talking about isolation. And so let me clarify that because when Paul speaks of this, there are those who might say, well, that means you, can have, uh, you have no contact with the world. You can't live in the world and have no contact with the world. Separation is not isolation from the world, Okay. That's been attempted before. You, you can't, look, you can't, listen, you can't carry out the mission of God if you isolate yourself from the world. But you can live a separated life. That is, the things that influence your life, the things that, that um, uh, reveal who you are and, and the person you are can be displayed in a world that frankly is looking to know what is truth. Paul's not calling us to isolate ourselves. He's not calling us to hunker down, turn inward, and say, it's just our group right here. Eventually, by the way, you, you lose the mission of God if you do that. 
He sent us out into the world. Now, He sent us out into the world in power, didn't He? With the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't send us out in our own strength or with our own energy. But He didn't tell them, He didn't tell the disciples in Jerusalem, y'all just hang here, I'm going to send you power from on high, and then it's going to make your gathering even more enjoyable. He didn't say that. He said, you're going to go out, but wait till you have received power. Don't go in your own strength because you have a source of power that will enable you to live differently in the world. So we walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, Paul writes. And so we are, we are not to be isolated from the world, but we are to be set apart. Literally, that's what the word means, separate. In the Greek, it means to be set apart. And, and, and you might say separation is about our distinction. That is being distinctly different from those who are not a part of the kingdom of God. Now listen to me. It's not about trying to show off spiritually. It's not about being arrogant and saying, well, look who we are. We're part of the kingdom of God and you're not. That's not what, it, that's not what it's talking about. It's not trying to say, you're, to, you're just spiritually elite. That's not what Paul's talking about, but he's talking about there should be a distinct difference in us and those who do not belong to the kingdom of God. What he's talking about is what Jesus talked about when he called us to be salt and light, light and darkness, salt in a saltless world, bring flavor to it that reveals the difference that Jesus Christ makes. Jesus said his followers have a mission. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. It's the mission. It's the mission. So, how do we live distinctive lives? How do we live this separate kind of life? What are the distinctives of a follower of Christ? Well, the Scripture tells us that. And let me give you three distinctives. This, I guess the list could go on and on, but I want to give you three distinctives about Uh, What a follower of Christ, uh, what his life should indicate to the world. He should be distinct. She should be distinct. We are to be distinct, first of all, in our thinking. In our thinking. That's why, by the way, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, don't be conformed. In other words, don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. How are you going to keep that from happening? By being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's your mind going to be renewed? It's going to be renewed by the truth that's contained in God's Word. And so Paul adds to that in Philippians 4, in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. A Christian's thought process, a Christian's thinking, a Christian's uh, uh, ideas should be distinctly different from the ideas of the world. And, and the world will see that we think, by the way, I didn't say that when you think different from the world, there won't be any conflict. There will be. In fact, there will be a lot of conflict. Because you'll have the essentially beyond behind the scenes the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light and they're at odds with one another and that's why when a the a, a citizen of the kingdom when they think scripturally it is at odds with how the 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 kingdom of this world operates and so it creates we're seeing some of that aren't we 
We're going to see more of that. And that's why right now it's important. Don't wait down there to try to say, I'm going to, I need to say, look, your behavior right now needs to evidence that you're a, a, a kingdom citizen and that will be reflected in the way you think. N.T. Wright, a great theologian, writes this. He said he had a friend uh, that uh, uh, described the reaction of his mother when he went home as a young teenager and declared to his mother that he had become a Christian. And he said his mother thought that he'd joined some kind of cult. They've brainwashed you, she said. But he was ready with the right answer. And he said back to his mom, Mom, if you'd have seen what was in my brain, you'd have known it needed to be washed. Of course he hadn't been brainwashed. In fact, again and again, and this is certainly the case, Wright says, of his friend, when people bring their lives uh, to Christ, their outer lives and their inner lives, and they bring them into the light of Jesus Christ the Messiah, new, things become clear in their thinking. If anything, he says, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us. Do you get that? Persuading us in a thousand subtle ways that the present world is the only one there is. Trying to create a mood in which it seems just easier to go with the flow. It's where we are in many ways, and it's where the church must never be. Just going with the flow to avoid any, any conflict. That's what happens in brainwashing. Just go with the flow. But what the gospel does is it, 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 it shoots a sharp jolt into our lives. It shines a bright light. It kick-starts our brain and moral sensibilities and causes them to work right. When I, uh, when I was called in the ministry as a young teenager, I have told this story before, but just quickly, uh, I, had a, I had a relative who told my mom that she said, you better watch him. He's going to be a fanatic. And she said, and I've seen religious fanatics that go crazy. Well, I thank God my mom didn't try to talk me down or away from Christ in any manner. And I did become a fanatic. And I still am. All these years later, I am. I'm a Jesus fanatic. I think the new term today is Jesus freak. I'm a Jesus freak. By the way, what, what goes around comes back around. That's what they were calling them in the late 60s, early 70s, Jesus freaks. Now they're starting to do it again. Well, I am. I, I am. Uh, because what happens? Jesus, He interrupts. And He changes. The way you think, He affects your behavior. You don't see the world the same way. You don't experience the world the same way. And by the way, He gives you love for the world that you didn't have before. He doesn't make you hate the world. He causes you to love the world. He causes you to say, we understand when Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're up to. They don't know what they're doing. That's what Jesus does. He, he, he distinguishes our thinking. But secondly, we are to be distinct in our behavior. Verse 17, he says, touch no unclean thing. 
And in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15, listen, Peter writes and says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that is, before Christ, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your what class? Conduct or behavior. We are to be distinct. We're set apart. We're to be distinct in our thinking. We're to be distinct in our conduct, in our behavior. The story is told of a man in Alexander the Great's army who was also named Alexander. And this particular uh, uh, officer in Alexander the Great's army was not behaving very nobly. And the word finally got to Alexander the Great, and so he called him in, and he stood him before him, he said, he said, now, son, tell me your name. And the, this junior officer said, Alexander. He said, what? Say it louder. He said, Alexander. He said, son, say it like you mean it. He said, say your name, Alexander, like you mean it. He said, or either change your name and change your conduct. Why? Because Alexander the Great was saying, you're reflecting on me just because you bear my name. I want to ask you this morning, what does your conduct, what does your behavior say about your commander? What does it say about your commander? We are to be distinct in our behavior. And then last, we are to be distinct in our attitude. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to be distinct in our attitude. Jesus' attitude was always focused on the kingdom of God. His attitude was always focused on the kingdom of God. It was in heaven before He left His throne to come to this world. It was about the kingdom of God. And it was in the garden before He was crucified and returned to the throne. His attitude, because He said, Father, He said, uh, can we do this another way? But not my way, your way. And Paul writes in Philippians there and says he thought it wasn't robbery to leave the throne. In other words, he didn't say, well, I, I shouldn't have to give up my royal position at the right hand of God the Father to, to descend down and become one of the creation. He, he thought it not robbery. It was robbery. But he, his attitude was, no, this is an act of love by the Creator on behalf of the people He created. I'm going to them. You see, his attitude was a, a, a humble attitude and a loving attitude that caused him to come into this world. And his attitude was a humble attitude, a caring attitude, a sacrificial attitude, and a loving attitude that caused him to go to the cross before he went back to the throne. Are you with me? Jesus' attitude was always determined by the kingdom of God. The noted English architect Sir Christopher Wren many years ago was supervising the construction of one of the magnificent cathedrals in London. And a journalist by the name of, of uh, I forget his name. But this journalist asked the question of 
of three workers. He thought it'd be interesting to write an article. This is a magnificent architect. Thought it'd be fascinating to write an article about the, the construction of this cathedral. And so he, he pulled out three of the construction workers to get their opinion on what they were doing. He asked them one question, how would you describe what you're doing? Here were the answers of the three. The first said this, he said, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. The second said, I'm putting in 10 hours a day on this job. That's what I'm doing. But the third one said this, he said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of the greatest cathedrals to God of all time. You see, my question is, what kind of attitude do you have about what you're doing for the kingdom? Does your attitude reflect who you're working for? I'm working for the king. I'm just putting my time in. I'm just going through the religious motions. I'm just doing the things that I'm told I'm supposed to do. Or, 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 or is your attitude the attitude of Christ? It is the kingdom first. My attitude is about the kingdom. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ, his point to these Corinthians was simply this, it will be indicated in your associations. It will be indicated in your consecration or by your consecrated life. And it will be indicated and demonstrated in how you are separate in your thinking and your behavior and your attitude. But how do we get there? How do we get there? One word, really, one simple word, and that is surrender. Surrender. Jim, General William Booth was asked by J. Wilbur Chapman, who became one of the great preachers of his era. But William Booth, you know, the founder of the Salvation Army, was, was asked a question by uh, Wilbur Chapman. Uh, Chapman. He said, General what has been the secret of your success with the Salvation Army and its work? And after some hesitation, with tears coming down Booth's eyes, out of his eyes, he said this, I'll tell you the secret. He says, God has had all of me that there was. He said, there have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities than I've had. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was he said he's had all of me it was it was this statement that caused Dr. Chapman to say that from Booth I learned that the greatness of a man's power is found in the measure of his surrender you know, the fact is, you know how to, to reveal and indicate that you're a follower of Christ. You start with surrender. You start with surrender. I surrender all is a song we've sung for years. I surrender all. We forget the words of it, but we sing it, I surrender all. But probably for many, we ought to sing it this way. I surrender some. I surrender some, Lord. I surrender most, Lord. But here's what he says, I surrender all. It's what Jesus did in the garden. It's what he did on the cross. And it's what you and I must do as kingdom citizens is say, God, I surrender all. Because I value the kingdom of God above all other kingdoms. Lord Jesus.
Thank you for your great surrender, giving up your throne to come into this world to be our Savior. I pray for those that are watching, those that are in this live audience today. Father, if they have not surrendered their soul to you, that today they would do that. In fact, right now, I pray that they would call upon you. And if that's you watching or in this room right now, you just call out to him in your heart. You say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. I want you. I surrender my eternal soul to you. I give it to you. Come in now. I want to be your temple and live inside me. Maybe there are those watching, listening, sitting in this auditorium, and you would say, you know what, I, I need to surrender afresh. I gave my soul to Him long ago, but, but I've been occupying the temple of my life instead of allowing Him to be Lord of my life and the, the Lord of the temple. You just say to Him right now, Lord, forgive me for making it about me. And now, take, retake the throne of your temple. I'm your temple. Retake the throne, Father. Reveal to me any idols that have crept in and taken your place. And help me to deal appropriately with them. So Lord, be my Master and my Savior and my Lord. Now, Father, hear these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our invitation? I'll be here at the front. Other staff members are going to be on the aisles. And I want to invite you from the balcony or this ground floor, if there's a decision for you to make, maybe you in this live audience prayed that prayer to receive Christ. Would you slip out and would you come this way and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I trusted Christ with my soul. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. These are brothers and sisters who rejoice with you in that decision. Nothing to be ashamed of. Everything to be thrilled about. And so I invite you to come. Maybe you say, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. You come and say, Pastor, I'm a believer. I just need a church family to belong to. Would you slip out? You make your way down here. Take one of our staff and just tell us, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. Maybe you need to be baptized. Uh, We'll set up a time for you to be baptized. You ought to be baptized if you've never been baptized or if you haven't been scripturally baptized. And you ought to come and say, I want to do that because I want to be a a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I want to come and pray around this altar. Will you do that? Use this altar. Uh, It isn't for looks. It's for use. Come and use it. Talk to the Lord about something that's going on, perhaps in your life, perhaps in the lives of others, perhaps a decision to be made. There's something you just need to talk to the Lord about. Would you slip out and come and use that? Brother Tim's going to lead us. And as he leads us right now, balcony, ground floor, we wait. You come on.
choir are going to continue to sing and we're going to continue to wait. And we're waiting for you. I don't know who the you is, but we're waiting for you because God's tugging on your heart. And He's pulling you and He's calling you to make whatever that decision is. You and He know what it is and you need to obey Him right now. Would you come on? You slip out. You come on. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. You come on.